You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. My friends, so glad you're here. If you can find a seat, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, today's teaching text. Go ahead, flip there in your Bible or on your device. We'll pick up in verse 27. We're in the process of moving verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount together. And here's where we arrive this morning. Lust. This won't be uncomfortable for anybody, right? We just love talking about lust. But Jesus is going to take us there because here's... Why? He is not contented to have a family of religious people who know how to talk about religious stuff. He wants a family of truth-loving, power-displaying people who are able to say in every area of life with complete honesty, I was one way and now I'm another way. And the only thing in between those two realities is that Jesus showed up. In the Sermon on the Mount, we get a full strength vision of Jesus for the upside down life of his followers in this world. A life where we don't just behave rightly, but a life where we love rightly. Like, don't you feel the wrestle with Paul in Romans 7 where he's like, man, the thing that I want to do, I don't do. But the thing I don't want to do, I do. How long is it going to be this way? Jesus lines our hearts up with our behavior. can do that. Only Jesus can transform our loves, our hearts. And when we turn to the conversation about lust this morning, here's what we need to recognize Lust is love gone wrong. Lust is sexual and emotional stealing. In our minds, in our imagination, it takes what doesn't belong to us, what hasn't been given to us. And this is an undeniably complicated thing to talk about because here's what I know in a room this size. Some of you were sinned against. You discovered your parents' magazine collection very early. You went to a sleepover and there were things on the television late at night that still haunt the halls of your mind. Others of us were taken advantage of. And what felt strange and confusing has created a well-worn highway in your heart. Can I just tell you, I'm sorry if that's your story. You're left with a relationship with love and sex that you never thought you'd have. There are walls and anger and fear, and there at the very base, there it is, lust. I mean, some of us come in the room this morning, and this morning, you feel hunted by your sexual desires. It's gone from, in your mind, man, that is a beautiful and admirable person, and it has landed at your greatest fear. You can't walk in a room without sexualizing people that you want to enjoy. 
It feels like lust owns you. And then others of us are walking into the room this morning going, if I'm not hurting anyone, what does it matter what's going on in my mind? Why shows us in the text we're about to read? Our sexual daydreams tell us our sexual future. Just like anger last week, if you, if you didn't hear the sermon last week, go on YouTube, listen back. When anger grows up, when it gets full grown, you know what it turns into? Murder. It's the same way with lust. When lust is fed, when it's stoked, when it grows up, it leads to adultery. Just, and just like adultery, it breaks relationships. That future... That future is devoid of union with Jesus. And here's the biggest problem with that. That's exactly what you were made for. Lust is strangling us. Let's just get honest for a minute here this morning, y'all. We are all sexual sinners. Every one of us at the cross of Jesus, he has outed us as sinners. He said, hey, there is brokenness here in every single one of us. So right now, you don't, you don't have to go into default mode that we usually go to when we start talking about lust, which is to hide. Jesus has outed us. He's freed us. So that means we can actually be honest we can get real. We have sinned and been sinned against. And guess what? If that were the end of the story, it would be bleak. But you know what? It's not because who, you know who shows up? Jesus shows up. Jesus enters into the conversation about lust with serious compassion and careful precision. He cuts. You're going to hear that. <laughs> the Bible's going to tell you to cut your arm off. It doesn't really mean we'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. He doesn't cut like a butcher. He cuts like a surgeon. He heals us of the wounds we didn't know were there, or at least even the ones we couldn't admit were there. He rewires our imaginations to long more and more rightly for him. He pulls us out of the lust that is limiting our future and fills us with power to join him in the work. Like Jesus looks at you and he looks at me and he says, all right, one day at a time. And the day is coming. I know for some of you in this room, this sounds impossible. A day is coming in your future follower of Jesus where you talk about this struggle in past tense. That's coming. Here's the main point today, and I'm going to read the text. You need to hear the Bible more than you need to hear Nick. Here's the main point if you're a note taker. Jesus kills lust before it kills us. Jesus kills lust before it kills us. Friends, if you're able, will you stand in reverence for the reading of God's word this morning? Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. You can grab a seat here. All right, here we go. Point number one, point number one, Jesus corrects our understanding of lust. That's where he starts. He corrects our understanding. Um, do you ever have the moment where you connect over someone else's nerddom? You know what I mean by that? It's like there's this random thing that you find somebody else you meet and they like it too. And you're immediately like, oh my gosh, I feel so connected to this person. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, this happened to me with my friend, Kyle. Kyle is super into podcasts and guess what? So am I. So here's the thing. When you start out talking about podcasts, you start with pretty safe choices. What are you into? Well, I liked cereal. It's like, okay, everybody likes cereal. What do you got for me next? And pretty soon, as we start talking and talking and getting deeper and deeper and deeper, I'm finding out that Kyle is a fan of the spinoff of the spinoff of the spinoff of the spinoff of cereal. And I'm like, me too. Look at us go today, buddy. There is something that happens in our hearts when we get below the surface, when there is a deeper understanding of what's going on, the same reality applies when we're talking about lust. Friends, if we leave our understanding of lust at face value, we're going to miss out on the central gift of Jesus from this passage. Look back at verse 27. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, let's stop there for just a second. Remember, the Pharisees, who were the sort of super pastors or religious teachers at the time, they looked at the command to not commit adultery, and they limited it to what people did with their bodies, not what they did with their hearts. And guess what? The Pharisees started out with a really good desire. They wanted to please God. They wanted to obey him, but somewhere along the way, they lost their way. They turn the commands of God into a ladder to climb rather than evidence that they needed a savior. And so for the Pharisees, they looked at this command of God, which is good and right. And they said, okay, as long as you are not sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse, you're good to go. You're, you're obeying the law. Jesus is about to do here what he's been doing through the whole Sermon on the Mount. He is showing us that he cares about the motivations of our hearts as much as he cares about our behavior. Friends, if we are not careful, we will read the commands of God in the Sermon on the Mount and we will trick ourselves into a sense of self-sufficiency. Like, man, come on, I'm not going to commit adultery. It's not going to go that far. Like, I'm just kind of playing around with some stuff in my mind. I don't have to worry about this one. And here's the thing. You may be able to keep yourself from doing the thing. Maybe. Like, maybe you got a lot of willpower. Maybe you do CrossFit. Maybe you, you can just get it done. But here's the thing. You can't change your hearts. You can't, by your own willpower, get your heart to love and long for what God loves and longs for. The fruit of the Sermon on the Mount is not a personality trait, y'all. We don't stumble into this. It is supernatural fruit that Jesus puts on the trees of our lives. Or others of us hear this and we go, uh, conversation about adultery, no problem. I'm not married. Boom! Trump card. I, I, I get out of there. 
Not so fast. Jesus is about to elevate this commandment for all of us. Why? To push us into dependence, hear me, and reverence. Any way that we open the Bible and we look at it and we smugly go, yeah, I think I can pull that off without the empowering presence of Jesus and his spirit, hear me, is an unbiblical way to understand the Bible. Just because the Bible's open doesn't mean it's biblical, right? We want to understand what the Bible is actually saying to us. The commands of God that you are about to hear right here are meant to push you into Jesus, into dependence, into desperation for the presence of his spirit. That is the heart of their purpose. Why does this matter? Because right here, when Jesus is changing our understanding of lust, he does what he alone is able to do. He is able to put you face to face with the perfect, holy commands of God. And hear me, cause us to love them. Man, when we start talking about lust, here's what I find in the conversation. There's a lot of this. I know what I should do. But if I'm honest, I don't want to do that. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. Jesus can put that in us. He will guard us from the heart of the Pharisees, which is to use the law, the rules to gain his approval. But he puts in us a desire to honor the holy and beautiful God that we love. Here's the other danger when we start talking about lusts in our understanding. Some of us feel so entrenched, so entrenched. You, if you've experienced the sin and temptation of lust, you know that feeling. It's like there are ruts worn into your heart. And some of us think about this sin no longer being as easy as it is to breathe. That feels impossible. The thought of this being a distant memory rather than a perpetual, the sin of yesterday or last night feels like a joke. And the thought of wanting the opposite of the thing that you consistently find yourself wanting feels like you're thinking about another person. And can I just free you this morning? Guess what? You are thinking about another person. You are. Because Jesus makes us new. The real Jesus, my friends, crosses the tracks to the dark and lonely place that you find yourself unafraid to be seen in the likes of your company. He carries you home and he cares for you. He refashions your identity and your understanding of lust in the power of his grace. He strengthens your legs to stand. He doesn't, only he can do this. He doesn't let you minimize how broken you are. And at the same time, he doesn't leave you without hope that he can make this whole mess right. Remember, Jesus cuts like a surgeon, not like a butcher. So, so y'all, let's name it this morning. Not out loud, keep this one to yourself right here. Where have we limited the scope of this command just like the Pharisees? 
where in our heads are we saying, man, adultery really only applies to people who are married or that's, uh, that's just really grieved, messed up people. And where can we get honest and, and see what Jesus is actually doing in our hearts? If this is irrelevant or this is dated in your mind where you're going, man, what in, does this really matter what's go- rolling around in my mind? Friends, we have to be willing to get as honest with Jesus as he's about to be with us. If we're going to see what he can do. And here's, that leads us into point number two. He doesn't just change our understanding of lust. Here's the second thing that Jesus does. He reframes our relationship with lust. He reframes our relationship with lust. Um, If you've been around New City for very long, you've probably heard us use a word a lot, culture. We talk about the culture of our church a lot. And here's the reason that we talk about the culture of our church a lot. We are convinced that the content of our belief, what we believe about God as driven by his word, that that should actually create a certain quality of relationships that our theology translates into a real life together. Most of the time when Christians are accused of hypocrisy and, hey, let me stay in the front of the line, we are hypocrites. We're saying we have an identity that we didn't earn, that we can't live up to, but that's for another sermon. We think that this truth creates an atmosphere. It creates a culture, a way of relationships, the, the quality of your relationships tells you something about what you actually believe. You know that? This is in your marriage and your friendships. The, the quality, the vibe, the feel, the reality of those relationships tell you something about what you actually believe about God, what you believe about this other person. That is always true. What does your relationship with lust tell you about what you believe in it, uh, believe about it? Like, is the wool just pulled over your eyes? Like you're believing a counterfeit truth. See, Jesus is going to reframe our relationship with lust right here. Look back at verse 27. It says, again, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, I want you to see two ways right here that Jesus reframed our relationship with lust. Jesus is using a conversation about lust, don't miss this, to elevate our understanding of both God's holiness, his otherness, and the dignity of humanity. He's doing both of those things right here. With Jesus, with authority, Jesus in essence, in those verses we read, he is saying, you know when you look at another person with lust in your heart? That is equally as offensive to me and equally as diminishing of my image bearers as you sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse. And maybe right now you're going, come on, Jesus, that seems extreme. How in the world is that even possible? Here's how. Jesus is echoing Genesis here. The first book of the Bible. You remember what happens when sin enters the world? It says that Eve saw a fruit, right? 
That's when Eve begins to make a judgment call and calls something that God has said is not good for her, good for her. She starts making a different judgment call than God. See, that's exactly what lust does right here. Did you notice? Look back at the Bible. It says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman, someone who's making a judgment call, It causes you to make that call that doesn't belong to you. Lust causes you to say, I know God has put these boundaries around sex in my life, but I'm deciding something else. And if you'll listen for a second, here's why that's a tragedy. God in his holiness, in his beauty, in his complete otherworldliness, his complete perfection, you know what's true about his judgment calls? They're good and right. Like he's not out here trying to rob you of joy. When you reevaluate a call that God has made, you step out of alignment with the very fabric of the universe. You push against what's good and right. You, you look into the very source of all goodness and all beauty, God himself, and you call it evil when you do that. Y'all, that, that is the most, it can't get more backwards and broken than that in our hearts to look at what's good and say, that is terrible. The one we're supposed to love, God, without the presence of Jesus, we are allergic to. This is a, it's a tragedy. What is God's holy design for sex? is summarizing the Bible's teaching in one sentence, God's holy design for sex in one marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And some of us right now are feeling absolutely bristled by that. But here's why the bristling causing you to reject that as reality would be a mistake. Lust as defined by Jesus assumes that fulfilling any and every sexual desire is the core of a person's identity. But catch this, Jesus never had sex and he was the most human human that has ever lived. The most fulfilled, the most full. So Jesus is not denying you true humanity by saying reject lust, reject anything outside of the biblical pattern for sex. He is liberating you from a sex-centered reality. He allows you to say genuinely from your heart, hey, sex matters, but guess what? It's not ultimate. Here's why this matters. The cultural vision right now in our moment for being a human assumes that sex is the center of a person's identity. Will you hear me for a second? That is a prison. It's a prison. Here's why. Suddenly you've got people who are wrestling through unlimited sexual possibilities and expressions who are not more free. They're more stressed out and lost than ever before. Real Christianity, my friends, real Christianity provides an identity so much more solid than that. It doesn't ignore your sexuality or your sexual desires. It just refuses to put them where they don't belong. And that's at the center of your life. 
Lust points us inward. Did you see that word Jesus used? Lustful intent. That's a thing of the heart. It points us inward towards self-focus and self-absorption. It says, man, if I can just remove any and all boundaries around sex, I'll figure out my relationship with it, and then I'll finally be happy. But Jesus does something different. He points us up. He points us up. It's a, if I can know God who created sex and everything else, I will finally be stepping into true humanity. And guess what? The same Christ who spoke these words makes that our future by his death and resurrection. Some of us desperately need to hear this this morning. Don't miss this. You are not your sexual desires. Your true joy is not on the other side of their fulfillment, believe it or not. And some of you who are str maybe struggling or fighting in your singleness, you're going like, yeah, Nick, you're married. That's really easy for you to say. Living on both halves of the coin, I'm telling you, it is a wonderful gift from God, but it is not the point of your life. It won't complete you. Here's how that begins to, Jesus uses that to reframe our relationship with lust. The reason you give in to lust is because you believe it can deliver what it promises. Like, man, if I just click the link, I'm finally gonna feel better. I'm, I'm finally, this anxiety is gonna go away in the back of my head. But will you hear me? Lust is a liar. Our relationship with lust is not meant to be a dinner guest that we entertain. Like, man, let's, let's hear lust out. Maybe have some good things to say. No, lust is a traitor meant to be executed. Lust is fighting against you. Lust is trying to keep your eyes on you and on the objects of your desires and off of Jesus. And the more you believe the lies of lust, the further away that you actually end up from your truest desires. It works against you. And once lust gets its hooks in you, it doesn't respect your boundaries. It pushes you around. So here's the question for us this morning. What lies from lust is your heart believing this morning? Some of us are feeling consumed by the desires of lust. We feel like if we don't get the thing that we're daydreaming about, we aren't gonna make it. Can I just tell you, that's one of the most destructive thoughts to your joy. What's the lie that you're believing from lust? And inversely, what truth from Christ in his word that will not pass away needs to replace the voice of lust in your life? When, you start, when, when lust starts asking, hey, what's the harm if I daydream about this guy or girl? Christ says that is the wrong question. The real question is, how is this going to rob me of communion with my father? How does this make me look unlike my father in the world? How is this going to isolate me by causing me to sexualize every person and relationship in my life? Nope, I'm going to reject it. I'm going to trust Jesus to fulfill the deepest desires of my life. And we're still on point two right here, but there's another area that way that Jesus changes our relationship with lust. I want you to see. 
looks at a woman with lustful intent in verse 28, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus connects lustful intent and adultery right here. Why? Lustful intent in scripture comes with this idea of covetousness. You know what covetousness is? You probably didn't throw that around this week. Like, man, I've just had a lot of covetousness in my life. Covetousness is when you desire to take something with no regard to the rightful owner. With no regard of what it costs the person who actually owned that. Friend, that is the same exact substance as adultery. This is what lust does. It prioritizes our pleasure, our judgment call over the dignity of another person. And I can be very honest, lust is a form of sexual slavery where another person is trapped in the prison of your own mind. It consumes another person as a sexual commodity. And it ignores the ownership of God and the distinct privilege that each person has to offer their sexuality in God's good design. And whether we sense it in the moment or whether this other person, the object of our lust, has any idea that we're lusting after them, it's still a form of spiritual enslavement. Friends, this is the heart of the pornography industry. For example, this year, one of the most popular sites that has billions and billions of hits every year, it was discovered that some of their content uh, had videos of children, those who have been trafficked or stolen, and those who were abused. See, lust takes your eyes off of the cost. It puts your eyes on you. It's like, man, it's just a click. It's not hurting anybody. But the click is perpetuating evil. It's perpetuating evil. And here's the hidden consequence in all of this. God and people become commodities for your consumption rather than gifts to be received and stewarded from him. Like, man, when you said yes to lust the first time, that's not what you were signing up for, right? You never said yes to lust, expecting that it would turn your relationships into a sort of sexual capitalism. But here we are. Lust doesn't respect your boundaries once it's in your life. It doesn't respect you. And Jesus is saying, don't take the boundaries of God around sex as arbitrary or optional. Take them as impenetrable and sacred. And don't believe the lie that consuming someone else's sexuality with your mind is costless. It's like handling fine china like it's a paper plate. It's offensive, right? It's offensive. Here's why this matters, why Jesus reframing this relationship matters. If you are getting mowed down by lust constantly, Jesus says, hey, guess what? With completely unhindered access, with no disappointment, why don't you come and look at the Father with me? 
And the father says, man, you, you've got to see the son. He is incredible. And the son says, have you met the spirit? Oh my gosh, come over here. You got to see the spirit. And the spirit goes, oh, the father and the son and, the, and on and on and on and on. The eternal God, father, son, and spirit, the center of the universe is saying to the Christian every single day, you got to come look at this. You've got to come get in on the beauty, the, the fellowship of God and friends, if you're not fighting from here consistently in communion with that God, guess what? You won't change. You won't change. See, I know I shouldn't do this. Rarely keeps us off of the computer late at night. But the heart of Jesus does. Jesus' frame for life in this world was all about showcasing the beauty, the holiness, the enjoyability of God. Why? Because he saw the beauty of the Father. He saw that the Father was somehow stronger than anyone else and yet more tender than anyone else. Jesus saw the whole white hot holiness of the father, the same holiness that, that he said, Moses, if you look at me, you're going to fry, man. That same holiness that so filled the vision and life of Jesus that purity bloomed out of his life. Friend, when you constantly look to the father the way Jesus did, your relationship with lust will fundamentally change. More and more, over time, etching and etching away, you start to lose your appetite for it. Why? Because it grieves the God that you love. The thought of looking at a person who God loves in a way that robs them of dignity begins to break your heart. So here's the, the, the question for us this morning. What about God is gripping our hearts if we're going to fight lust, that's the actual question that we've got to answer. We've got to see our God. You know when the least effective time to fight lust is in your life? In the moment you're being tempted to lust. You've got to move upstream. You've, you've got to get ahead of it. The only way to stop loving lust in the moment is to start loving God before the moments. And here's the truth that Jesus has shown us in the Sermon on the Mouth right before in verse 8 of chapter 5. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who live in pursuit to see God, guess what? They see him. They see him. We need a new place for our love and our imagination to go off of the object of our lust and onto the only one who can handle the weight of it. See, this is the relationship with lust that a Christian has. It says, you, you don't tell me my ultimate identity. It says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to the Father for that. And then point number three. Here it is. Jesus gives us a strategy to fight. He gives us a strategy to fight. Theologian Mike Tyson has some good advice for us this morning. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's not bad, right? I wouldn't just carte blanche recommend Mike Tyson's advice to you, but that one's pretty good, right? There's something about that, right? You get, you get in the ring and you're like, okay, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to jive, jive, jive. And then you get punched in the head 
And then you start throwing haymakers. And guess what? You never trained to throw a haymaker, but you're trying. And what's happening? You're getting smoked. You're getting eaten alive out there. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. What is the plan that Jesus calls his followers to? The last half of the text tells us. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What's the plan for sexual sinners? Hey, cut off your arm, chop, chop. Oh, no, I said that backwards. Chop off your arm, cut out your eye. Welcome to church, right? Very, very encouraging advice. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? The right eye and the right hand were considered the prominent eye and hand of Jesus's audience. Where are my lefties at? Yeah, me too. It's a right-handed world, isn't it? It's a right-handed world. Scissors really mess, mess with us. <laughs> to lose your right hand for most people in our world and in the ancient world would have been extremely costly, right? And not just physically, but socially costly. It would have caused people to look at them and think that person had to have committed some kind of crime. They got their, what they do to get their hand lopped off. I don't trust that person. Here's what Jesus is saying. There is no cost that isn't worth paying to ditch lust when it is robbing you of your true treasure, relationship with God. And if it makes you look foolish, if it causes you some real embarrassment, guess what? Cut your arm off. It's better to lose an arm. Friends, this is our hope in lust. I, ho I pray this about the culture of our church, is that this silent, often embarrassing and hidden thing would come into the light with others who will receive you the same way that Jesus does. Who will not think less of you as a sinner, but will think more of Jesus as a savior. Guess what? When you look a trusted friend in the eye and you tell them you're trapped in a pattern of lust, that's not the moment they're finding out you're a sinner. Remember? At the cross, Jesus has outed every single one of us. So you and I get to drop this illusion of self-sufficiency. That can die and we can confidently walk into the family of God. Friends, a lot of times we're, we're going to be the one going to confess or we're going to have others coming to confess with us to say, man, I'm struggling. I can't get out of this. I'm failing. When a brother or sister comes repenting of lust to us, Jesus gives us a gift in John chapter eight because he shows us how he deals with a woman who comes caught in this same sin. If, you'll, uh, if you have your Bible, just flip over to John chapter eight with me for a second. We're almost done here. Thanks for hanging in, y'all. In John chapter 8, I'm picking up in uh, verse 3. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Right? Jesus connects lust and adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? 
They say this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I wonder what he wrote. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, let him who is without sin among you be the one, uh, you be the first one to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Did you see what Jesus said to her accusers? Hey, whoever is sinless, go ahead and cast the first stone. Guess what the irony of this statement is? There is one person in that circle of people who is righteous enough to get to pick up a rock and chuck it at that lady. And you know who it is? It's the guy talking. The one with the right to condemn her hides her. He protects her. And then he turns around and he says, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Friend, when a sexual sinner comes to us, here's the per first part of our fighting strategy. We get to come to them with good news before we come to them with good advice. Guess what? If you're a sexual sinner, I'm saying this to you right now in the room. The only one with the right to condemn you doesn't. If you are in him, if your trust is in him, the only one with the right to condemn, condemn you does not. That is the heart of the gospel. And Jesus isn't being sentimental with this woman right here. Friends, someone was going to have to die for the sins. Did you see what the Pharisees said? They were right. The law of Moses commands that the penalty for this woman's sin is death. You see, it wouldn't be swept under the rug. When Jesus forgives him, it, I'm sorry, when Jesus forgives her, it will cost him everything. Friend, your sexual sin killed Jesus. It killed him. But because he is Jesus, there was no part of him that begrudges giving up his life for you. How do we respond to that kind of love? Jesus tells us, go and sin no more. In other words, cut your eye out. Go live a new life in the freedom, the forgiveness of the gospel. Friend, we are in our digital age of all the hardships of that. We're blessed with all these tools that help us. Have you heard of covenant eyes? Like, man, are you struggling with looking at things on the internet that cause you to shudder after the moments? Like Covenant Eyes is going to send your search history to a trusted friend. I'm telling you, if you put your grandma and your pastor on that thing, it's definitely going to keep you from wanting to look at things you shouldn't be looking at. And having an actual friend where you talk about your inner life, where something that isn't seeable is now observable like a cut off arm or a plucked out eye. Ray Ortland says this, I love it. You can either be known or you can be impressive, but you can't be both. What do you want to do? 
when we embrace this, we snatch each other from the fire of hell this way. And we more and more keep hell from invading our lives in the here and now. Some of us, I'm almost done here. Thank you for hanging on. This was a long sermon. Some of us are fighting with lust right now. Why not get real this morning? Why not? Jesus stands. He stands next to you like the woman who was caught in adultery, ready to take the blows, ready to shield you with his strong arms, ready to free you from the prison of lust. Will you trust him to do it? Will you stop trusting in yourself and trust him? Some of you are feeling convicted about this for the first time in your life. Your guts are turning and they're telling you that something has to change. Friends, Jesus stands ready to save you. You'll come to him and there's a good chance tomorrow you're still going to be a mess you're, unless he does a miracle and he can. I mean, we're going to ask him for that. But man, tomorrow morning, if you, if you come to Christ today and you wake up tomorrow and you're still struggling with pornography, guess what the difference will be? Yesterday you were a mess. Tomorrow you'll be Christ's mess. He is ride or die with his children and he's going to kill us. Reach out to him and be healed by the only one who can get it done. Let's pray. Uh, Christ, we love you. We struggle with lust. We struggle. We fail. But to all who fail and fall at the feet of Jesus, he carries. Lord, for some of us in the room, it feels impossible to get free of lust. I'm praying this morning that as they open their hands in faith, that you'll do a miracle You'll do a miracle this morning. Christ, fill our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, New City.